Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Greg Potter back on the show. We touch on his recent travels uh, across the globe and some of the lessons he took from that. And then we dig into essentially Greg's outsider perspective on what's important to monitor for bodybuilders in terms of health, but also performance. And I think this is going to be a really insightful chat. It might save you a bunch of money and stress. So definitely listen in. And as always, guys, if you are interested in physique coaching, you want to step on the physique stage as a bodybuilder, bikini athlete, what have you, you want to do a photo shoot, or you're just interested in building more muscle mass or losing some fat, then we are here to help you with our online coaching service at Revive Stronger. So definitely check that out. Link in the bio below. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Greg Potter back on the podcast for the first time in 2023. It was actually quite a long time ago since I've had you on the podcast, Greg. I don't know if you realize how long it's been, eight months, just over eight months ago. So the time just flies. Uh, It's absolutely kind of crazy. And we're talking about sleep regularity and kind of catching up on sleep and those elements. And for those that don't know, Greg is the man for sleep. And we're going to be touching on some things. I mean, sleep might come up, but it's not going to be specifically sleep specific this time around, which I think probably Greg uh, is pleased about in some ways, because I'm sure you talk about it a lot, but you do love sleep. And um, I think it will be a really interesting chat this time around. But first of all, um, I think the listeners will be interested in some of the travel that you got up to because I think it also over on your Instagram you're kind of posting bits and kind of pictures from that travel like uh, that you went on and there was kind of some really cool take homes which I think are relevant to everyone in the world so yeah uh, I don't know if we start there yeah sure and nice to be back Steve eight months I think is probably the longest stint that we haven't recorded a podcast which sounds really not that long but yes I have been doing a little bit of traveling as always and i suppose the most recent big trip that i had was i went to indonesia for a month back in august started in sumatra i had two weeks there had a week around komodo islands doing some scuba diving and then a week around the noosa islands just south of bali and the instagram post that you're alluding to is just about this amazing 92 year old lady that I met when I was staying at a guest house and she was the owner of the guest house's mother. She'd been working on the land her entire life and was still as busy and as active as ever. And I remember speaking to this guy, the owner, Keta, about her and finding out her age and just being astonished because she was so mobile. She would get up each morning at dawn She would then spend a couple of hours just cleaning, doing some gardening, looking after the animals. She could hold the bottom position of the squat while picking things up for several minutes at a time. She had great body composition. She looked like she was probably in her late 70s, clear-eyed, really friendly. just looked at her and she just oozes wisdom. And I just thought, how remarkable that this person is in such good condition at that age, there's surely something to learn there. And of course, there is a lot to learn. And people nowadays are very interested in some of the determinants of longevity. And many of those have been identified to everything from how integrated a person is socially to some aspects of their nutrition, their physical activity, 
some measures of physical function, such as both their cardiorespiratory fitness and their strength, and various other variables too. But the thing that stood out to me about her is just that she never stopped using her body and her mind. And I think what happens in countries such as the UK is that we're active when we're youngsters and there are lots of young people who are in amazing condition out there. And you fall in that category, Steve. But the problem is that we stop using our bodies often around the time that we finish education. And we also end up working jobs in which we're not challenging ourselves cognitively either. And all of a sudden, we're going through a gradual deterioration in many aspects of our biology. And you see that when tracking people's strength longitudinally, their cardiorespiratory fitness, some aspects of their cognition and so on. And I suppose the, the best demonstration of just how quickly some of these declines can take place is in some of the bed rest studies that have been done. Famously, there were the Dallas bed rest experiments, but there have been various other ones too. And there are other models of disuse atrophy, such as what happens to people during microgravity that are really informative. And so when thinking about all of that, I was just reflecting on the fact that it's really important that we carry on challenging our bodies in all of these different ways. And that means that if you're a gym goer, you want to be doing various different types of exercise and working on building different types of physical qualities. But also I think what's relevant in her context is that she probably never suffered any serious injuries. And I think so many people who orbit the world that we're in, Steve, spend lots of time trying to get really big and strong or in adjacent spheres, maybe they're really interested in trying to become an endurance stud. But while doing so, they're thinking, well, if I build those capacities when I'm young, then I've got a bigger buffer against declines in function as I get older. However, what can happen is that they just beat up their joints. They end up with loads of overuse injuries, for instance. And then that really comes back to bite them in the long term. And so I think there's a there's a trade-off there. And what we should be aiming for is continuing to, to use our bodies, taking advantage of these things that we now know about the science of longevity and the fact that it is advantageous to build those capacities when we're young, but doing so in a way that preserves us as we get older. I think that's really well said. I mean, as soon as you talk about again, like trying to build your bodies up and be as large as possible and then not having injuries later on. The, the first person that comes to mind for me is like Ronnie Coleman, uh, just because of like the, the position he's in. Obviously he's like, I have no regrets, blah, blah, blah. But I'm sure he would have wished to have got all the accolades he got while still being able to function and be with his children and active with them as normal and still be able to train somewhat. Uh, you look at someone like Jay Cutler, maybe had a slightly different approach. Obviously wasn't quite as, uh, didn't achieve the things Ronnie achieved for various reasons, but clearly he's still able to function a little bit better than him. And you know, there's things maybe even inside that, maybe Ronnie had the genetics for more severe injuries or whatever. So you can't know these things, but you could probably look at some of the, the training he did and say, was that the risk to reward there for you? Absolutely. Yeah, perfect example. And whenever I think of, I don't know if the, the areas you visited, would they be classified? Because I was, I haven't looked at it for ages, but this is like the Centurions, the Blue Zones, those sort of areas. Were they, was it classified as one of those? No, so not Indonesia. However, 
since then, I've also spent a couple of months in Sardinia. The last three years, my girlfriend and I have spent one to two months there. One year, we combined it with Sicily as well, basically just extending the summer. And we both love Sardinia to bits. Alghero on the west coast of Sardinia might well be my favorite town on the planet. And we now go back to the same place. We know the people that own it. It's 150 meters from the beach. The beaches there are beautiful. Food is great. The people are friendly. And it's just got this amazing ambience in that no one's in a rush. People don't seem to get very stressed out about things they shouldn't be stressed out about. I've never seen anybody very drunk. I've seen people mildly tipsy. That's about the extent of it. It's not really on the tourism map either, which frankly is is quite nice. You don't bump into loads of Brits that <laughs> make you feel slightly ashamed to be a Brit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is one of the blue zones. So there's an area in Sardinia on the east coast, or right by the east coast, called the Nuoro province, where there is... A blue zone. It's actually the first of the blue zones that was identified. And as you're alluding to, there's a disproportionately large number of people that live to age 100 or older in that region. And I think there is actually a little bit debate of debate about whether that is indeed the case. There was an interesting paper published by an Australian scientist a couple of years ago. And he suggested that the veracity of the birth records in Sardinia might not be very high. So many of the people who appear to be 100 or older aren't in fact that old. <laughs> and that probably explains why it's a blue zone. And maybe that's the case. But with that said, I, I do think there is quite a lot to learn from some of the regions that have been identified as blue zones about how to live a good life. And when I spend time in Sardinia, it does feel like an incredibly healthy place to be, not only in terms of those things that I mentioned earlier, but also in terms of things like the air quality, how walkable the place is, all these different factors that clearly are associated with how well people are in the long term. So I sometimes feel like I'm working for the tourist board of Sardinia. <laughs> anyone ever gets a chance to go, then they absolutely should take the opportunity because it's, it's, a, it's a special place to me. And whatever, what always comes to mind with these sort of areas when I hear about them and I don't know, when you see the type of person that's there, that person never seems quite as like highly strung as many Londoners are and the stress uh, kind of factors. And yeah, it's just, I wish I could be more like those people. And I, I think when you're in that environment with others like that, it's the same where if you're in an environment with stressed people, you're probably going to feel more stressed. Similarly, if you're in an environment where everyone's chilled back, like, sorry, laid back, you're just going to be like, ah, oh, this is how we go. <laughs> Absolutely. I think there are also probably certain characteristics that are probably going to quite predictably affect how you feel. And one of those is just the density of the population. So I haven't actually read this book, but I know that there's a man named Jeffrey West who's done lots of work on scaling and I think that some of his work suggests that larger, more densely populated regions cause people to move more quickly. And I feel that myself when I go back. Yeah. To, it's always a shock flying back into London from Sardinia because you go from this place where 
you feel quite laid back and no one's in a particular rush. And then all of a sudden you're met with these people who are practically jogging at you from all directions, <laughs> bumping into you and so on. You're like, oh, good to be home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's an experience, especially the underground and everything. When you have, every time I go, I barely ever use the underground and I come on there. I'm like, man, this is so busy. I'll be with Charlotte. And she's like, this isn't even busy. I'm like, oh, this is horrible. I don't like this at all. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, this kind of sets up the podcast nicely. I forget the, the kind of title that we uh, kind of settled on as we spoke about this episode, but it was essentially kind of your outside perspective on what bodybuilders and we're going to stick to natural bodybuilders are doing in terms of their practices and things that they might be able to uh, monitor to improve kind of their health outcomes within the pursuit of bodybuilding and kind of going down this line of thought of kind of health and bodybuilding and how does that mix. So the first one was, uh, I saw again, a, a post by you, you were trying this continuous glucose monitoring kind of with an app and it was intended to kind of personalize your nutrition via glycemic response. And I have seen obviously the enhanced side, they are kind of checking out these sort of markers because they're using something like insulin or what have you. I know nothing about that sort of thing, but a lot of what the enhanced guys do the natural guys sometimes jump on and I have seen natural body some natural bodybuilders kind of sometimes looking at their kind of blood glucose and measuring that after meals and this sort of thing and I just wondered what your experience was with it and maybe what the utility might be for that natural person trying to lose fat or gain muscle cool what I'll do is I'll provide a little <laughs> bit of background as well and I'll also mention that I suspect that Drug-assisted bodybuilders can learn more from natural bodybuilders than vice versa. And I think that might be worth bearing in mind. Obviously, that's not something that's been tested rigorously in any way, but that's just a suspicion. So continuous glucose monitoring is a way of assessing the concentration of glucose in the interstitial fluid around the clock. And the interstitial fluid is just basically the fluid between cells in your body. And it roughly corresponds to what's going on in your blood. And there are various different continuous glucose monitors that are available now. The most common of those are the Freestyle Libre and the Dexcom. And the one that I used was the Libre, which monitors glucose levels for about two weeks at a time. And now there are some ones that last longer. So for example, the Eversense, I think works for up to 180 days. So nearly six months, which is really interesting and also probably really helpful for people who have conditions such as diabetes. And like you say, these are now being used in lots of different so-called personalized nutrition services. Some target diabetes specifically, some don't. A couple of the more popular or better tested ones are Zoe, which has had loads of airtime in the UK recently, and Levels. Another one that's very well studied is Day 2. And some of these will have people go through self-experiments as teaching tools. So for example, maybe you would have a high carbohydrate food in isolation at a certain time of day, as opposed to having that same food in combination with foods that are rich in fat and protein, and then seeing how that influences your body's blood sugar response to that item or those items. And I think as a behavior change tool, Continuous glucose monitors have some very helpful characteristics. They're pretty unobtrusive. You, you barely notice that you're wearing them. 
they give you real-time continuous feedback and i think that's really important when it comes to how engaged people are with these devices clinically one of their helpful characteristics is that they don't just provide spot data so they also give you information on things like rates of change because you can measure a snapshot of your biology and it will tell you something but maybe measure your blood sugar just after having a bolus of a carbohydrate rich food and your blood sugar is now right at its peak and that is cause for concern whereas if you'd measured your blood sugar when you were fasted the value would be substantially different related to what i just said that means that you can intervene to avert problems and and this is very helpful in something like poorly controlled diabetes and that's why i think these devices right now probably have the most utility in the context of something like type 1 diabetes and i think that there are some some real pros to be had by trying them at least in certain contexts so if we think of dysglycemia poor blood sugar control then it's clear that that contributes to many chronic non-communicable diseases so everything from prediabetes and diabetes and metabolic syndrome which shares features of those conditions that I just mentioned to polycystic ovary syndrome. It's clear that that has quite a strong blood sugar dysregulation component. Liver conditions, I'm thinking of everything from something like simple fatty liver or steatosis to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, maybe even cirrhosis, fibrosis, and then also probably certain forms of dementia too. So there's some interesting prospective work showing that people who experience more and greater blood sugar swings are more likely to go on to develop certain types of dementia than people with better blood sugar control. And obviously, with that in mind, using these devices can yield some benefits, at least in certain contexts. So if you look at the studies of diabetes, then people who use them tend to spend more time in what's deemed the healthy blood sugar range. The devices also let people monitor what's going on remotely. So Steve, let's say that you've got a client who has diabetes and is using a continuous glucose monitor. You could set things up such that you can access that person's data. And then the two of you can work together to identify what the causes of large blood sugar swings are. And when you think about something like the COVID pandemic, obviously this is a real advantage. And also it can probably reduce things like the need to go into the hospital to, to visit GPs and so on, because that type of remote monitoring is also conducive to remote support and there are lots of different telehealth and digital health type companies that therefore will incorporate these monitors as part of their offerings and <clears throat> what's interesting now is that there are some very influential people who are pushing the use of these devices in people who are metabolically quite healthy you commonly see this in the biohacking and longevity obsessed communities and I think that there are some potential real cons to this particular development. So one of them is just the, the psychology of using these devices. And if you look at biohackers, 
then I realize that I'm speaking in very general terms, but they're quite neurotic people for the most part. And I definitely think that using continuous glucose monitoring can make you quite neurotic about things that you really shouldn't be that fussed about. Using a monitor is also going to somewhat predictably influence people's food selection if their goal is optimizing their blood sugar control. So it's going to tend to push people towards things that will reduce blood sugar swings. So those would be things like lower energy availability, lower carbohydrate diets. And sometimes that's really helpful. Sometimes it's definitely not helpful. So if you think about a natural bodybuilder who needs to have adequate energy and carbohydrate availability in the gym to support performance, and this is probably especially the case during massing phases, then I think it's plausible that could actually compromise training adaptations. And maybe thinking about your coaching context, Steve, it could actually hinder people's compliance with your recommendations because they might find that when they bump up their carbohydrate intake and their energy intake, all of a sudden their blood sugar is swinging more. And then that over time could lead them to have lower training performances and therefore they might accumulate muscle mass and strength at lower rates than they otherwise would. I think it also tends to lead people to exclude foods that might have quite large glycemic loads, but are in many ways quite good for people. And there are probably lots of examples that you could use here, but for instance, there are various fruits that are very phytochemical dense that also have quite high glycemic loads and will cause most people to have quite high blood sugar responses. Take red grapes, for instance. And that might be relevant if you're consuming lots of grapes in isolation, but if you're having them after a mixed meal, then I don't think you should be too fussed about the addition of 100 grams of grapes. And it's also worth mentioning that these devices aren't perfectly valid. They are generally quite valid. They quite closely correspond to what's going on in somebody's blood, but they're not perfect. And they tend to be validated in certain contexts. So people who are relatively inactive and when people have looked at things like how closely they correspond to what's going on in the blood during exercise, their validity is lower than it is at rest. And this is something that I experienced when I was trying these devices too. I, I used it during training and I was then going into the sauna afterwards and I, I had some interesting data while I was in the sauna, my blood sugar apparently dropping very low, which could have been true, but it could also have just been biofouling because in the sauna, you're sweating at very high rates and so on. And, and maybe something about the high temperature of the sauna compromises the mechanisms that are internal to the device. So with all of that said, I think my, my general perspective can be summarized in a few ways. and. Part of that is that if you have diabetes or prediabetes or some form of glycemic dysregulation and you can access these devices, then go for it. I think that they're likely to benefit you. If you don't, then I probably wouldn't bother with them unless you have lots of disposable cash. And I think it's important to mention that people have been getting in great shape for ages without these devices. 
how useful they are is going to depend on a few things. So how healthy you are. I think if you're less healthy at baseline, then they're probably going to be relatively more help helpful. Your knowledge as well. If you're using these devices in conjunction with some sort of app that's teaching you about your nutrition and your nutrition knowledge at baseline isn't that good, then you're going to probably gain more from using them than you otherwise would. And your goals as well. So if, if your goals focus both on your physique, but also your cardiometabolic health, then maybe uh, continuous glucose monitor is going to be more helpful than if you're just interested in getting in great shape. I think they're definitely helpful teaching tools. And with that said, I also think that there are lots of lessons that you can learn without actually going through the process of using them. And there are many things that predictably influence people's blood sugar responses. And you shouldn't need to wear one of these monitors to realize what those things are. And so just to rattle off some examples of this, I mentioned energy availability earlier. All else held constant. People with higher energy availability will probably have larger blood sugar swings. Another is carbohydrate intake, obviously. Again, everything else constant, higher carbohydrate intake, higher blood sugar swings. Another is glycemic load, higher glycemic load, higher swings. Then there are food combinations too. So combine an individual carbohydrate with fat and protein, especially if the fat and the protein come first, or combine it with fiber, and you'll probably see a smaller blood sugar spike. Another is how physically active you are. And obviously one of the one of the great things about doing resistance training and other forms of exercise is that you get a dramatic increase in non-insulin mediated glucose uptake. There are changes in your muscles that basically shuttle glucose transporters to the surface of those muscles that then allow more glucose to come mm -hmm. into via the blood. And if you look at all the research that we've done so far, it seems that if anything, if you're trying to improve your blood sugar control, then it's likely that doing some activity just after eating has a larger effect on your blood sugar control than doing the same activity just, just before eating. So just doing things like going for a 15-minute walk after meals will get you many of the things that you're after. Then there's the timing of carbohydrate intake over the course of the day. We've spoken about this before, Steve, but if you have most of your carbohydrate in the morning, then everything else held constant, you're going to probably have better blood sugar control than if you have most of it in the evening. And there are also some order effects too. So there's a phenomenon named the second meal effect, which basically describes the fact that your blood sugar responses to a meal are probably going to be smaller if it's preceded by another meal several hours earlier. And I won't go into the reasons why, but that's quite consistently the case. And then there are some other lifestyle factors too, like sleep. So take people who have obstructive sleep apnea and diabetes and treat their sleep apnea using positive airway pressure and their blood sugar control will improve. And so I think it's, it's worth considering that given how many things affect your blood sugar control, especially in people who don't have quite a, a sophisticated knowledge of health at baseline, it's probably quite easy to arrive at faulty conclusions while using these devices. So maybe you experience a large blood sugar swing and you chalk it up to something 
But in fact, there were several variables that caused that. And for that reason, you've actually learned something that's not even true. So I, I think with all of that said, they have their uses, but I think that things will change in the future too. And they will change in part because people won't just be looking at blood sugar control. They'll also be looking at continuously monitoring other things in some of these tissue compartments. So for example, I think being able to continuously monitor things like fat in the blood, ketones in the blood, maybe amino acids in the blood will give a clearer picture of someone's metabolic regulation than just looking at glucose control alone. And interestingly, there is some work suggesting that if you look at triglycerides in the blood after eating, they, they better predict risk of cardiovascular disease than fasted triglycerides. And so much of the focus has been on continuous glucose monitoring so far, but I think continuous lipid monitoring and so on will also prove to be really helpful in the future. And for that reason, just bear in mind that what you see is all there is. So if you're just optimizing for glucose all the time, then you might in fact be, be causing some other changes that are in fact detrimental. So let's say that you're therefore on a very low carbohydrate, high fat diet, you're having these massive blood lipid swings after meals too. That's not going to be good for you, but you might not pick that up if you're just using a continuous glucose monitor. So another predictably long answer steve but you know those are, those are some of the things that yeah I, I wrestle with i think it's certainly more complex than what i think nine times nine out of ten people looking at it think it is i mean it's more complex than i was even kind of thinking about it uh, in, in a way and i think i'd looked at these devices and thought a lot of the things that i do myself and the people listening do and i coach will kind of make using the something like a device like this it kind of like nullifies using it because we're already kind of controlling the variables that are going to lead to hopefully good kind of blood glucose management but it's interesting to think that like you could in a sense i look at a lot of sometimes what the biohackers try and do is in a sense outsmart the body and it kind of reminds you of what some bodybuilders try and do in peak week where they try and like outsmart the body in terms of oh, i can control where water is gonna be at a certain time it's like the body's actually very very smart and actually i remember talking to you I think this was after I'd uh, done my kind of peak week over in uh, Vegas and I was telling you about how I was trying to get my potassium and electrolyte kind of really kind of ratio balanced. And I think there's something to that to some degree, but you're like, the, the body's really good. Like you don't have to get it as precise as like, uh, you're probably stressing more than you needed to. And I was like, oh, if Greg's saying that, <laughs> then I, I, th I no doubt was. And uh, like biohackers, bodybuilders especially in prep are very neurotic too or they can be <laughs> me in particular that's part of the reason why you're successful though. <laughs> um yeah so i guess it could i summarize this so for the a natural bodybuilder listening who has kind of a relatively well balanced macronutrients they're eating three to six balanced meals through the day maybe if they're having some non-meals they're probably mostly protein versus just like a I don't know um carbohydrate bolus do you think for that person who is managing again like weight gain or what have you and has they're managing other variables like sleep stress do you think the kind of continuous blood glucose monitoring is going to be very additive for them or it might just be another 
it's kind of a data point almost for the sake and it could be taking away from it especially like you said it could be make you think you need to make decisions that maybe aren't fruitful for the outcomes or just cause another stress point i think if you're monitoring some of the things that we might get to later then there's probably no need for them do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We create the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Cool. That's good. Uh, then the next question actually is um, any utility in getting your HbA1c, which is an average longer term blood glucose measure, um, any utility in getting that fairly regularly? And actually, I know I didn't put this to you uh, before, but uh, I don't know if I can add it in here if you have any thoughts, but getting kind of blood work as a, even for yourself, Greg, or a natural bodybuilder semi-regularly, is that something you think would be advisable? Yeah, I, I definitely do think it would be advisable. And I think there are a few things that are worth considering. So related to what I was saying about continuous glucose monitoring, I think that the, the worse your health is, arguably the more frequently you should get it done. I think it's really important to standardize the conditions in which you get the blood taken. So it should be taken at roughly the same time of day if you are female and you have an intact menstrual cycle, then ideally it would be taken at the same point in your menstrual cycle. You should be hydrated, so not hypohydrated or hyperhydrated because both of those can skew the results substantially. Simple things like how tight the tourniquet is while you're getting your blood taken can also influence some of the markers in your blood so you just need to standardize those variables and i think for most people getting it me measured in the morning ideally maybe within three hours or so of waking up in a state of dehydration and fasted is the way to go and ideally i also think that you would get venous blood samples taken by a nurse as opposed to some of these kits that people now use to take blood samples at home, just because many of them will look at capillarized blood as opposed to venous blood. And while the two do largely correspond to each other, they're not one on the same. And frankly, we know a lot more about how to interpret the markers when the blood is from a venous sample than we do from the capillarized sample. That might change in the future, but I would go the old fashioned route at the moment. I also think that it's worth people getting a blood test done when they're feeling good. 
when they can establish some sort of healthy baseline for themselves. So Steve, if you think about your own prep, obviously then many of the markers are going to change substantially over the course of your contest prep. Testosterone is going to go in the bin, thyroid hormones probably are too, and so on. So establish a healthy baseline for yourself, but also recognize that the reference ranges that are used are based on population norms. They're not necessarily based on what's optimal. And so, frankly, you need a skilled practitioner to be able to interpret your data and look at them relative to various optima as opposed to relative to the usual reference ranges. And recognize also that what's best for you might not necessarily be best for somebody else, even if that person is in the same demographic that you are. In terms of the markers themselves, I, I think various markers can be really helpful. And most of the ones that doctors might look at, that's definitely true of. So everything from electrolytes, kidney markers, liver markers, glucose and insulin, lipids, sex hormones, thyroid hormones, certain inflammatory markers, and then complete blood counts as well. All of those can give you valuable information about your overall health. You don't necessarily need to always monitor all of them, but if you were establishing that healthy baseline, then you might want to look at all of them. And when it comes to interpreting them, obviously, if you're working with a healthcare practitioner who has lots of experience interpreting them, then that's going to benefit you. If you're not, then there is quite a lot of information available online now that might be able to help you out. I'm thinking specifically of some resources put out there by a friend of mine, Dr. Tommy Wood. He has some work on interpreting blood tests. There's also a great free YouTube series by Brian Walsh, Brian with a Y. He published a series of videos with Wellness FX years ago on interpreting blood chemistry tests. And to this day, they stand up really well. So I would consider watching those two, even if just out of curiosity, there's some great information in there. And then Going back to HbA1c, like you say, it's a measure of longer-term average blood sugar levels because glycation is, is basically tacking glucose onto macromolecules. So in the case of HbA1c, hemoglobin is made up of heme, which is iron, and globin, which is this protein chain. And so if you've got more glucose in the blood over time, then that sticks to the hemoglobin, and you measure that by your HbA1c test. On average, red blood cells live for about 115 days. And so it's roughly a measure of your blood sugar, average blood sugar levels over 115 days. And you can use HbA1c for diagnostic purposes in some people. So in the UK, the criteria that are set for diagnosing diabetes are the ones that are put forward by Diabetes UK. And here, an HbA1c of 6.5%, I think, is the cut point for diagnosing diabetes. So values, values that are higher than that suggest that somebody might well have diabetes. But this isn't always an appropriate mark. So, for example, HbA1c is not used to diagnose diabetes in kids. It's not used to diagnose diabetes and people who 
have only had symptoms for a short period of time, it's not used to diagnose diabetes in pregnancy and so on. And I think one of the issues that's at play here is just that while the average red cell lifespan is about 115 days, that does vary between people. And so even within a person, their red cells might live anywhere from maybe from maybe 70 to 140 days. So there is quite large variation. Obviously, the, the longer that a red cell lives, the more time there is for glucose to stick onto it. And so if whatever reasons your red cells live longer than average, that's probably going to push up your HbA1c. But then if you look at your fasting glucose, and if you did an oral glucose tolerance test, you might find that your blood sugar control is actually better than you thought it was based on your A1c result. Very interesting. And uh, it's... Yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, I hate needles. Uh, I think a lot of natural bodybuilders say that, right? Um, so I remember doing the at-home finger prick tests. And from my knowledge, they've actually changed how they do that, where for quite a lot of the measurements that they're going for, they say they need to send a nurse in or you need to go to a hospital to be able to get a, a correct marker. Because I, in the past, I was like, oh, the finger prick's fine. I can get all this kind of blood work done. And then I looked at it. Don't know many months later i was like oh no i have to like get a nurse in to actually shove their needle in me and I, i'm not into that uh, but it's it's very interesting and i think uh that's where i think a lot of people could get the like the continuous monitoring and thinking about these swings and really hyper focusing on kind of missing the forest for the trees almost where they're really really focused on all these kind of swings it's like well zoom out and that's probably going to give you a better idea of, of what's going on internally do you have like a rough kind of um, time schedule that you would recommend people get these done and then also you mentioned feeling good does being in a like what caloric state you're in if you're in a surplus deficit maintenance I guess that's something you'd want to standardize and maybe even where you are within your kind of training cycle yeah yeah absolutely so that, those are really good questions regarding energy availability I think it would probably be ideal to be in a state of energy balance so to be pretty much weight stable and in terms of training training can certainly affect some markers so in particular some markers that relate to protein breakdown so you might find that things like creatinine are affected by how recently you've done strenuous damaging exercise and so i think standardizing when you take these tests relative to your training loads is definitely a good thing to do. And I probably take them during a, an unloading period if you have control over that. But again, it's just important to take them under relatively standard conditions. So maybe you're someone who, who doesn't have regular unloading phases in your training for whatever reasons, because obviously there are many different periodization models that people use. The point is that you should be standardizing when you're taking these within your training cycles in terms of frequency it varies from person to person and i i think it's easy nowadays for people to think they need to do things really frequently in part because that's what many of the companies that use these tests and other tests push for because obviously that's good for their bottom line and I don't actually think that you need to do these types of tests that frequently. I think 
for most people who are generally in quite good health, maybe doing them once a year is, is, is more than enough. I don't personally get my blood work done more than about once a year. I think if, if you're really, really into your health and again, you've got lots of disposable income, then you could do every six months. But I, I don't think that that is necessary. And I, again, just worry that some people will become overly neurotic about <laughs> measuring things very frequently, assuming that more frequently is better when I just don't think that's the case. And I actually also think that, as we've touched on briefly previously, Steve, some of these markers are probably going to change a little bit over the course of the year, especially if you live quite far from the equator and factors such as your sun exposure fluctuate a lot over time. So we spoke a bit about how thyroid function changes over the course of the seasons. And based on that, if you were going to take these on a regular basis, then you might think about using annual increments or annual tests or say twice a year if you want to test more frequently for whatever reason or three times a year but looking to standardize when you're taking them relative to the annual cycle i think what you mentioned there is so important because i do think most people just like the continuous blood glucose monitoring getting blood tests because there are more and more of these companies coming out with this available to people i think so much of that information that you just stated there in terms of standardizing things I don't think that that's apparent enough to the majority of consumers going and doing it. And so like you mentioned, it could impact things to, to a high degree. So yeah, I think that's so well said and well stated. I think it's probably a relief for people hearing that you're kind of like, yeah, once a year, it's probably enough for, for everyone, for most people, unless you've got kind of reasons to get it more often than that. So very well said. Now, the next question is probably going to wrap some nice things up in terms of uh, training and general health, what do you think is worth monitoring? So I probably broadly think about this in terms of training and performance and in terms of general health. So with respect to your training, and Steve, I think you'll have probably better informed opinions on this than I do, but I think as a bodybuilder or as a physique enthusiast, if you're looking to to monitor performance in the gym, then I would probably look to monitor your best performances, standardizing for technique in certain lifts within certain rep ranges. So maybe as a bodybuilder, that would be five to eight rep maxes in certain multi-joint lifts. And those can be selected based on the individual. I think certain lifts work better than others, but I'd probably look to assess performance in lifts such as some squat variation, some hinging variation. So maybe front squat and trap bar deadlift, for example, maybe some sort of thrusting variation. So maybe a shoulders elevated hip thrust, some sort of pulling exercise. So for me, I might pick something like a, a chin up, maybe some sort of pushing exercise too. So for a bodybuilder, that might be something like a, a low incline press, something like that. And then doing so relatively regularly over time. And, and you could try to align all of these different types of tests. So for example, if you're monitoring your blood every six months and maybe you're monitoring your 
your lifts around the same time too. And you're monitoring some of these other things that I'll get to as well. I also think that you probably will benefit from keeping a training log provided that you periodically review it. You could monitor things like training loads, numbers of hard sets and so on. I don't know about the utility of doing that. I'd, I'd certainly be interested in your perspective on that too, Steve. Yeah, I think what you mentioned there in terms of performance for essentially performance like your best like PRs over time essentially is kind of what I'm thinking about for many of your lifts. I think some people will say some of the more isolation based based lifts can be quite telling because there's a less of a skill component. But I think once you're an advanced or relatively well-trained bodybuilder, probably the skill component isn't huge. So I do like kind of looking at progression on those big compound lifts over time. And then in terms of hard sets, I used to have like all these graphs that would look at kind of the week and how many sets I was doing per muscle group. And over time, I've just come to realize that doesn't matter so much. It's what the performance is doing over time. And I think like you mentioned, kind of those kind of PRs are, are probably what's indicative of what progress is happening and again the standardization of technique is incredibly important because a lot of people will hopefully improve technique and so they might look like oh, i've maintained performance but if they're don't know eccentrics way more controlled and they're pausing at the bottom factors like that it has a huge influence yeah yeah and i think what you say about isolation exercise is interesting i, I don't know if you'd agree with this but my inclination would be if you go that route to use relatively lower training load. So maybe instead of using, say, a five to eight rep max, you're using an eight to 10 rep max just because isolation exercises don't tend to be so well suited no. to higher intensities. Yeah, you have to use a, a higher rep range for sure. Uh, absolutely. Okay. And so then in terms of other physique-related outcomes, I think monitoring certain anthropometrics make sense so body weight obviously is one of those assuming that you're fully growing your height isn't going to change so i think that's that can be telling particularly if you look at it in conjunction with circumferences and i think the the most useful of those in terms of overall health for most people is probably just waist circumference that largely reflects ectopic fat fat so how much fat there is where you don't really want fat. So in between and, and within certain organs. And regarding that, fat in certain organs seems to be particularly problematic. So I think that's especially true of liver fat and pancreatic fat, pancre pancreatic fat. And if people are interested in that subject, then I definitely recommend looking into the work of a man named Roy Taylor who has done a lot of work on diabetes specifically, and he's got this twin cycle hypothesis that's really interesting. I won't go into it now, but relates to what I was just saying. There's also an interesting concept known as personal fat threshold that I think is very relevant. The idea being that if you look at somebody's risk of diabetes, then it is heavily affected by changes in their fat mass. However, some people will develop diabetes at quite low levels of body fat, whereas other people can accumulate a lot of body fat before they start to experience the type of dysglycemia that can contribute to diabetes. And this is part of the reason why it is helpful getting blood tests done, because you might only have 16% body fat if you're a man, 
and be able to develop diabetes at the level. If you're doing things like resistance training, then you're less likely to because of those improvements in blood sugar control that I mentioned earlier that don't relate to insulin per se. But I just think that's worth bearing in mind because there, there are some people who can have well over 25% body fat and not have diabetes just because their personal fat threshold is very high. So they're able to deposit a lot of fat in their bodies without it causing a lot of metabolic dysregulation. There are other anthropometrics that you could take. So you could look at things like your body fat levels, maybe you use skin folds, maybe you use DEX or something else, but your physique isn't judged going by what your DEXA scan says. And I think if, if you're taking circumferences, so say as a physique athlete, you also, in addition to your waist circumference, you monitor things like your thigh circumferences, your upper arm circumferences, and so on. And you find that your waist circumference is more or less staying the same. The other circumferences are increasing over time. Your body weight's going up and you take the occasional photo of yourself too. Your lifting performances are going up and your relative strength is too. So let's say that the amount of weight that you add to your chin-ups to hit that six rep max is going up while you're gaining weight, then all of that suggests to me that you're probably not gaining body fat too quickly. And you just shouldn't be too fussed about paying lots of money to get a DEXA scan. I'm not saying that it's not informative. And I think there's probably certain instances in which you might want to do a scan like that or some other type of scan. But I just don't think it's essential for a lot of people. And ultimately, it's just wasted money. And then in terms of health, I mentioned blood tests earlier. And those, I think, are worth looking at relatively regularly and it's worth looking at at certain markers on a consistent basis but then otherwise just maybe doing some additional tests over time as is necessary so maybe for example one of the things that you always look at is your hba1c but maybe periodically you also look at certain inflammatory markers and so maybe occasionally you look at high sensitivity C-reactive protein, for instance, but it's not something that you look at every single time because doing so would be costly and frankly, not that informative. But then in addition to those, I think measures of self-rated health are really helpful. Sounds too crude to be significant, but when you look at research that's been done on the different predictors of how long somebody lives, Self-reported health is about as strong a predictor as almost anything else. And you can measure that using a, a few very simple questions. And so when I work with clients, I often use really simple questionnaires like the, the World Health Organization 5, WHO 5, which is just a, a five-item questionnaire that basically is scored out of 25 and reflects how you feel with higher scores reflecting better well-being. There are other ones too that are slightly longer and will break down aspects of your well-being into different dimensions. So, for example, there's the SF12 and the SF36. They're very widely used in research. There are also lots of disease-specific ones that are worth considering if you have a particular health condition that's relevant and that you want to monitor over time. And then related to that, I think well-being aside, there are disease-specific metrics that you might want to track 
in certain cases. So for example, let's say that you're prone to a very low mood. Maybe you use the, the Beck depression inventory occasionally, the, the BDI, you can find a free version of that and the other things I mentioned online. Maybe you are a female physique competitor and you lost your cycle when you were preparing for your last show and you want to get your cycle back. Maybe you, you track your menstrual cycle and there are all sorts of ways you can do that now. There are apps, obviously, popular ones like Flow. Various different wearables will also help you monitor your cycles. I think Aura and Apple devices will both offer that now. There are probably many others too. You might also want to monitor some other more objective measures of your health, such as your blood pressure. So if you've got a family history of cardiovascular disease and you find that while you're gaining mass, your blood pressure tends to increase more than you would like, maybe that's something that you track over time, as always tracking it under standardized conditions. So standardized posture, standardized feeding conditions, time of day, and so on. And then finally, when it comes to, to monitoring, this is slightly tangential, but most of the things that I've described so far have been outcomes and that's helpful to monitoring progress but in general i think people should focus on monitoring their behaviors as opposed to outcomes if they're looking to become healthier because you want to focus on things that are within your control as opposed to things that you can somewhat control but but can't dictate so as some examples of different behaviors that you might want to monitor with respect to your physical activity, one of those would be step count. I think step count is a great metric and also lots of wearable devices, particularly wrist warm ones and hip warm ones do a really good job of that. And it's also something that can change substantially if you gain or lose substantial amounts of body mass. You might want to consider tracking your sleep. We've spoken about this previously, but let's say that you have insomnia and you're trying to improve it you'd probably gain from keeping a sleep diary, something like the, the consensus sleep diary. If you're trying to improve your nutrition, then maybe you track something that you deem appropriate. I know lots of people will track their macronutrition, and certainly I think in a, in a physique context, that can be advantageous. For other people, it might just be tracking things like their, their overnight fasting period. Again, there are apps that will help you with these things. You might also track your supplement adherence because a lot of people just forget to take their pills. I think that's probably less true of natural bodybuilders who, who tend to be hyper-focused on these things. You'd but, be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think in general, people, people just forget. And then also, let's say that you have a, a stress management practice because you recognize how important that is to your overall health. Maybe you track the number of days that you meditate. And again, if you're using an app for this, most meditation apps will, will give you some sort of streak. So they'll, they'll say you've accomplished this many consecutive days of meditation, or you've done X number of total minutes over the course of the last 12 months, whatever it is. I think that's really, really helpful, particularly that you bring it back to the processes because like you said, they're the things you have control over. They're the things that are going to lead to hopefully the healthy outcomes. I think the reason I think that's great is because I think a lot of people listening, some of the things you mentioned there, they might not be really like closely monitoring and tracking, 
but I guess they'd be going in the right direction because for a lot of the people listening will be doing the processes you mentioned where they will be doing their workouts. They will be having a step count. They will be thinking I need to get eight hours of sleep and they'll be doing those kind of the healthy practices, which often lead to when they would do a test, hopefully. Um, and maybe this would encourage them to do more of that or more monitoring of those things. They'd be going in the right direction. Cause yeah, if you never measure, like how can you manage kind of, how do you know your processes are doing what you want them to be doing? You could be doing them better. So you do want to intermittently measure them. So I think that's very well described. And uh, a lot of the things that I personally uh, implement with our clients, that measure of, uh, I forget what you called it. It was kind of just like subjective well-being. essentially is kind of what you mentioned there. Um, I actually might look into that and look at some of the questions there. Uh, I check in and we kind of, I always want to know if my clients are stressed and those sort of things, but I don't have like standard questions, which might help people. I think you probably would say this too, Greg, like you can't just be like, so how are you doing? Sometimes it's nice to have some actual questions for someone mm. to have to answer. Uh, so I think that's really well said. And I know we had more we wanted to come on to, but I might have to bring you on uh, sooner than eight months, probably uh, to cover off the rest because I know we're coming to time. Uh, but I just want to say a massive uh, thank you again, Greg, for coming on. Pleasure. Yeah, great to catch up, mate. And for the listeners, uh, I know well, it's been a long time. So is there anything going on in, in your world uh, or that you're up to that you want to let the, the listeners know about? And if they want to, again, uh, plug the Instagram, because I mentioned that a few times. And if there's anything else they should know about. Yeah, you can find me at Greg Potter PhD on social media. Website is gregpotterphd.com. And I, I do offer coaching services. So if you want to get in touch, then feel free to, to reach out regarding those. I don't say that <laughs> feeling at all comfortable about plugging myself. And I, I realize that it could come across that way, but Yes, do do get in touch with any questions related to what we've discussed today. I hope it's all helpful, but nothing substantial to report otherwise in terms of dramatic change in my life. So yeah, looking forward to, to the next round, mate. Absolutely. And I mean, I know exactly how you feel in terms of yeah, trying to plug coaching or anything like that. It always feels wrong or like yeah, yeah. awkward uh, so we have like uh, adverts that I think Pascal recorded that just like plug themselves into the podcast so I, I very rarely feel like I need to, to say anything it feels much na more natural that way but uh, definitely like if you guys have listened to Greg's an incredibly intelligent guy if you're interested in coaching with him I, I can only recommend it so again thank you guys thank you Greg and we'll talk to you soon take care Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.